to the 52 Week Podcast, where three friends grapple with the ups and downs of goal setting and achievement. Coming at you for another week. Hello, my name's Steph, and I'm the wannabe runner. I'm Meredith, the ginger. And I'm Kelly. I'm just along for the ride. Hello, today we're learning about Kelly. (laughs) Kelly! And they all switch off now. <laughs> Whatever. No, she's the most fascinating one of all of us. I know. So, Kelly, you were born in Melbourne. No. where You're from Melbourne. Where were you born? I claim Melbourne as home. Technically, I was born in Adelaide. But we moved to Melbourne when I was about four. So, Melbourne's home. Okay. So, tell us about your family. How many kids are in it in the family i know i I feel like it's a first date question but you know we all want to know we all want to know um there are four children in my family so i have an older brother and he's married and has five sons and then there's me and then i have a younger sister who is talented in all ways it's ridiculous um and then i have a younger brother now it makes it sound like my brothers aren't talented they're very clever also um, I have a younger brother. Stace is your sister that you're saying is uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. All the skills. Um, and a younger brother and he is married and they have a dog. So, you know, that counts. Mm-hmm. So that's us. And they all live probably about 40 minutes, within 40 minutes of my parents. And they all still live in Melbourne and love life there. And I'm the lone wanderer. Goodness knows why. <laughs> Well, and one thing that you always say is that your family is so much funnier than you are. I want to be a family dinner because I'm like, (laughs) dang. Yeah, I would say um, in fear of any of them listening to this, (laughs) I would say we all got our humor from mum and then have kind of taken it different ways. So my younger brother, we would probably identify as one of the wittier but we're, we are all funny. My sister doesn't believe it, but I think she's funnier than me in a lot of ways. Um, and my older brother is funny as well. He just has, you know, a lot of life going on. I think he has less time to be funny than the rest of us. All his boys. <laughs> I mean, when you're a father of five boys, that's that, you know, it's, it's hard to stop and crack a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Especially dad jokes. Yeah, I mean, I think we, he's probably inherited a few dad jokes from dad. And dad is funny as well, but he's from a different part of Australia. <laughs> a different, what do you mean a different part? He's from Queensland. He's from down under. <laughs> We're all from down under. He's from Queensland and they just have a different humor to the rest of us. Mum's from South Australia. And so we were born there apart from Daniel, um, my youngest brother was born in Melbourne. Um, So we just, I don't know. I think we inherited more of mum's humor and it's just different to dad's humor. And I think dad felt a little left out sometimes, but that might just be because some of the jokes were directed at him. It's it's how we show love. I love you, dad. (laughs) So how did your parents meet? Oh, Can you that one's that? a much longer story. Okay. <laughs> Let's just say they're in the same MTC class in New Zealand. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, my, essentially, my grandmother did some matchmaking. Um, well done, grandma. Yeah, fairly effectively in the end. But it is a much longer story. Of, um, But my mom is almost five years older than my dad. So, 
yeah, a little bit cougary. Yeah. But, yeah, eventually, once they got married, moved, or dad moved down to Adelaide where my mum was living. And, yeah, then came along the children. So what was elementary school, Kelly, like? Is it called (laughs) elementary school in? We call it primary school. Okay, primary school. Primary school in Victoria, which is the state I'm from, begins in prep. And that's your first year of school when you're like five or six. Um, And then first grade through sixth grade. So prep, grade one, two, three, four, five, six is primary school. And then you go to high school and that's seven through 12. Um, primary school Kelly was definitely like studious, afraid of getting in trouble. So she always did the right thing. Like I loved primary school. I, I look back, I'm like, did I peak in primary school? (laughs) Perhaps. We can't rule it out. (laughs) But like, those were some golden years. Like I wasn't the cool kid, but the cool kids respected me. So That's like, a good place to be. So they like yeah. they didn't pick on me or anything. Um, I was also extremely tall in primary school. My fourth grade teacher made a bet with a friend and I that if we were taller than her by sixth grade, she'd give us like a candy bar, a cherry ripe. They're real good. They're worth betting on. Um, <laughs> but we were taller than her by fifth grade. So yeah. It was, I think there were awkward times being tall. Mm-hmm. I think the boys gradually got taller than me in high school. And I wasn't one who wanted to stand out height wise because I was pretty shy. But yeah, I think my love of primary school led to wanting to be a primary school teacher because I just thought this is the greatest time of my life. I want to stay here forever. What a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you think you peaked. <laughs> I didn't know that about you, though, why you wanted to be a teacher. So. It just seems so fun. Like, I loved my teachers. I was like, I want to do this. Like, this seems like a great way to spend your day. Look how delightful I am. Who doesn't want a class with me? <laughs> so what was... Spoiler alert, they're not all like me. <laughs> it takes a year, only a few mm. months of teaching, I'm sure, to get there. Where are all the Kellys? um so what was high school like high school had its challenges in that we lived in one part of melbourne from when i was four to when i was 12 and at the end of sixth grade which was the end of primary school we moved across melbourne to like a completely new area so i knew no one going into Uh high school um and that was really challenging like it's always hard to kind of move schools or move areas or move cities but it was really in some ways it was a really difficult transition to go into like the world of high school and have no one there that I knew at all um but in other ways it was kind of a good transition because it's like well we're all kind of in this pot of no one quite knows everyone so Mm -hmm. um but it's where I recognized another facet of my personality (laughs) where it was pointed out to me that I came across as really snobby. Do you you call people snobs here? Uh Is that like a thing? Yeah. Um, I guess I came across as a bit of a snob. And then later people were like, oh, but we really like you now. But when you first 
came here, like came to this school, we thought you were a real snob, which I've put down to A, being tall and awkward and B, being shy. So I didn't talk a lot. And so I guess that gave off the air of like, oh, she's too good to talk to us when really it was me being like, I don't know what to say to anyone because I just wish they couldn't see me. (laughs) I think, I think shy people get that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I have noticed it over my life that it consistently is told to me (laughs) because I don't think you're a snob at all just for the record yeah I think I'm getting better at it but it still happens often where I'm like Kelly just say something and then I don't (laughs) I'm like cool I probably appear like I don't care about people or um but yeah high school had its challenges when I was in year eight I got arthritis so that was a real rough year um that came seemingly out of nowhere and was a pretty scary year of I don't know why I can't stand up straight or straighten my arms or why my knees always hurt. But yeah, luckily when you were in eighth grade, uh huh. so I was 13 and it was just, yeah, these unusual things. Like I would get up in the morning and I couldn't stand up straight and it would take me probably an hour or two before I could stand up straight and went to the doctor. They did all the blood tests and were throwing around some scary potential diagnosis. And I'd go home and Google them and be like, I don't want to have that. Can it not be that, please? Um, but yeah, juvenile arthritis. Luckily, you can grow out of it, which oh, I did. That was my next question. Yeah. So it was really that year was the only really bad year of it. Um, but I mean, I can kind of give you a good indication if it's going to rain, like my knees can get a little tingle in them. I'm like, Oh, (laughs) the rains are here. (laughs) It's coming. Um, but that just led to challenging times because when you're 13 and you're shy and you're like, I don't want to be different from anyone, especially having like an old person's disease. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have this. So did you not tell people? Were you? No, I kind of had to tell people because I couldn't do PE and oh. like there were just different things that I couldn't really do. Um, and I have this one like traumatizing memory of being in a school assembly and I was tall. I was still fairly tall in year eight compared to other people. Um, and we were sitting in this assembly and someone behind me was like, I can't see past your big head or something, which I think is nature of like children, voluminous (laughs) curly hair and (laughs) being tall. Uh, But my friend who was very much like one of those friends who was like an advocate for me, which I didn't maybe always want, but so she turned around she's like, don't you know she's got arthritis? I'm like, Okay, my arthritis has nothing to do with the size of my head. <laughs> and I don't and want everyone knowing we've that. We just announced it to everyone. And I think someone was like, that's an old person's thing. Like, So, like, I just, as a 13-year-old, I didn't really want to be the one who had to educate everyone about how children can get rheumatoid arthritis. So, yeah, rough times. But, again, fairly similar to primary school in that I definitely wasn't a cool kid. And I did pretty well academically. But the cool kids, for some reason, had this, like, level of respect for me. So, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, she's cool. Mm -hmm. Not in, like, a, hey, she's at all the parties looking cool. (laughs) Just like a, meh, we let her be. 
<laughs> kind of situation. Uh-huh. I was also voted in 12th grade um, at the end of the year. I was voted most likely to become a brain surgeon. Oh. So when I became a primary school teacher, <laughs> I really showed them. <laughs> You've had one career change so far. There's, uh, to be honest, there's been more than one. But yeah. So so then after high school, where did life take you? Um, straight out of high school. So throughout my schooling, I wanted to be a teacher because it looked really great. Um, and I was convinced that that's what I wanted to do. But in my later years of high school, I really enjoyed science. Like biology, chemistry were just like... I really enjoyed them. So straight out of high school, I went and did a Bachelor of Science, which in Australia, it's a little bit different where you don't really do generals. At college, you go into college knowing what you will major in, like you apply to do a Bachelor of such, <coughs> such and such. So I went to do a Bachelor of Science um, and pretty soon into it, I realized, A, I did not know what a Bachelor of Science was going to qualify me to do in life. Like, I didn't really want to chase chase research grants or... I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And B, I went to a university, um, the University of Melbourne, which is a beautiful university, but highly competitive, full of, like, high-achieving Asians. And... <laughs> And I just found, like, the classes were really competitive. It wasn't like, oh, can we swap notes? It was like, we're all trying to get into the optometry program, and that's why we're doing vision science, and so don't you be looking over my shoulder. And I just kind of, I don't know, I wasn't feeling it. So about by the time I was six months in, I was like, this isn't what I want. So I finished that year. I don't know why in hindsight, but I finished that year. And then I transferred into a bachelor of education and I did that for four years um so yeah five years of college thems were good times my sister did the bachelor of education with me she was a year younger she is a year younger than me so we did university together in the end um which was great for group assignments so were you in every class together yeah pretty much so we're like can we have a group of two and the tutor would be like, well, okay, it's more work for you. I was like, yeah, but we don't have to work with random people. So, And you know exactly what you can get out of your yeah. sister. Yeah. Which you said your sister is like the perfect and good at everything she does. So maybe that was really frustrating. Um, no, I guess her skills are more, I don't know if manual is the word. Um, <laughs> again, if she listens to this, I love you. <laughs> she but speaks I would very say, highly of you. <laughs> I would say my talent's probably lend more to the academic and her talents are much more like anything art craft anything with your hands like she can just pick it up gotcha and she is like very academically minded as well but if it came down to doing some kind of like math assignment that was probably more my thing than hers um but yeah it was great just to split the cost of textbooks because they're really expensive oh yeah yep so it was good times and isn't it free in australia so our university um yeah we're pretty lucky in that you can defer the cost of your university until you earn a certain amount of money and you begin paying it back like a tax and so if you never earn i want to say it's like around the 50 60 thousand dollar mark if you never earn that you never pay back your like university 
degree. And I would say, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I would say the cost of our degree, even if you were to pay it up front, is much um, less than an American degree. So no one, I would say, maybe this is broad, but probably no Australian student is coming out with any kind of student loans. Mm-hmm. You've just got, it's called a hex debt. And you just pay it back gradually, kind of like a tax, but you're not walking around going, oh my goodness, I have this huge debt that I need to pay. So if you make a, over 50000 here, do you have to pay back? Yeah, there? sadly, in the last couple of years, they figured out that there was this little pocket of people who were leaving the country. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they have come after us. Okay. So, yeah, you've got to convert what you're making here and... If it's over the threshold, you start paying it back. Interesting. So I think I've, I've paid some of mine back, and, but yeah. I don't know. You're not walking around feeling like you've got this huge burden. You're like, no, oh, yeah, I've got my degree, which really stemmed from Australia needed and educated people. Mm-hmm. And maybe we all just wanted to be at the beach. And so they were like, <laughs> how do we lure these people to university? <laughs> yeah. We've got to get someone to be the doctor. <laughs> Not me, though. I did, did not become the brain surgeon. <laughs> um, but you served a mission in the midst of your university. No. Really? No. I, I was very non-traditional in the timing of my mission. Okay. <laughs> so after university, I became a teacher. I taught fourth grade in Australia. And I taught there, I want to say, for a year and a half. And then there's a random, not random, it's just the way it is teaching at government schools in Australia where it takes a little while generally to get an ongoing contract. So you kind of do like a six-month contract and another six-month contract and maybe a 12-month or another six-month because once you have ongoing, you can leave for multiple years and then come back with like a term's notice. So to allow for that, schools can't put new teachers on an ongoing contract. So I was in... Yeah, I'd been teaching for 18 months. I was, like, going back in to interview with my principal as if they didn't know me, even though I'd taught there for a while. And we knew of the new graduates, of the newer teachers, that someone wasn't going to get their job back mid-year because there was a teacher that was returning. Um, And so I kind of started having to look for other options just in case I was the one that didn't get my class back. Um, And so I randomly found jobs in the middle east i i don't know what they were advertising on australian sites and (laughs) so in the midst of my whatever i decided yolo why not live in the middle east who doesn't want to do that (laughs) that's never been on my book list i know that was sarcasm but (laughs) nor has it ever been on mine and it was really unusual it was kind of like i had this weird piece about it that i was like well this is not my normal reaction so maybe i should do this and how Um, old were you so i would have been 25 okay 20 yeah probably about 25 26 25 I can confirm. I just did the math. 25. (laughs) Um, So I moved to Dubai, technically to an emirate beside it named Sharjah, which sounds very Aladdin. I'm moving to Sharjah. (laughs) And I tell you, like, 10 years ago, you Google Sharjah and nothing is popping up. And I was like, who knows what random place I'm moving to. But I moved there and I taught at an Australian international school. Um... And yeah, I was there for a year and a half, 
that was crazy times. Wait, tell about the teacher that, who would tell the kids because they were very wealthy kids that you were teaching, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So they, um, so the school was a local man who wanted different options for his children, and he'd done some of his schooling in Australia. So he was like, "Let's just open our own school and bring in Australian teachers and bring in Australian books." And so there was a teacher there who taught prep again is what we called it but it's like the year before first grade um so probably like five-year-olds and yeah fairly wealthy children a lot of our students were local wealthy students and she was uh (laughs) it was coming up to her birthday and so it was a little bit like okay well the word this week is prada p is for prada everyone say it with me prada and then you know the next week Okay, this week's word is Chanel. Everyone say Chanel. Okay, and so when you go to the store and you're looking for a birthday present for Miss Annie, what do you tell mum and dad? Prada. Chanel. That's what you taught? No, I didn't. Okay. No, but that's the teacher. Like, so that just shows like these kids that they're teaching, they're very wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. And we were like, that is shameful. You cannot do that. Um, like the jaw is dropped right but her birthday rolled around and she scored it was good times for her lots of designer stuff so yeah it was a really interesting school it would be the working week is uh sunday to thursday and then friday was the holy day and so that's when you go to church and then saturday is saturday and so we'd get back to school on Sunday um, and I'd be like, you oh, know, the kids, what'd you do on the weekend? And they'd all be like, we took the jet to London. I'm like, oh my cool. Gosh. I went to the mall. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, whatever works for you. <laughs> yeah, it was a really interesting place to live. Um, and but a great base to travel from, which yeah, was really my purpose. Where did you go travel there. during that time? Um, lots of, mostly Europe. I wish I'd done more of the Middle East, but I kind of didn't want to be in sand when I didn't have to be because you just, there was sand everywhere. Like you could not keep the sand out of your house. Um, and so when long weekends, (laughs) when long weekends would roll around, it would be like, spin the globe. Where are we going? Oh, look, Athens isn't that far. Or, oh, look, let's just pop over to Vienna or which from Australia, you just can't do. Yeah. So it was nice in that respect. Some people were wisely there paying off mortgages back home because your apartment would be paid for you. Um, But I was there to spend all my money traveling (laughs) i would have too like if you have an opportunity like that yeah go anywhere yeah so then i returned home um like a year and a half later and figured i was over teaching didn't want to do that anymore um and so i went into educational publishing back in melbourne and I did that for a little while. And then I was like, I don't know if this is what I want to do. If I So, wait, wait. Is this publishing textbooks? Yes. Yeah. So, it's a company that publishes textbooks and books for, like, that teachers would use. So, it was resources that I was familiar with as a teacher. But it was the publishing side of it. And I kind of figured if I want to stay in this industry and work my way up, I really need to maybe go and get a master's of publishing or a master's of editing. And I just didn't really know that I wanted to go back to school to do that. Um, So I went on a mission because (laughs) 
who knows what holes nothing else over to you. Do. <laughs> so at this point, I was, I think I was 27 when I put my papers in. I was 28 by the time I left. Is there a cutoff date? Not for girls. Okay. So, like, a lot of girls leave at 21. So, yeah. That is a little bit older yes. than other. Did yes. that concern you going out that you were going to be with all these? Um, there were aspects of it that concerned me. Like, I kind of worried about having, like, district leaders and zone leaders who were 19. And I was going to be, like, 29. Um, and so I was a little worried, but, like, can I humble myself enough to listen to a teenager? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was really surprised throughout my mission that like when they were magnifying their calling, like I had no problem calling them up and being like, can you help? Like we have this problem with this investigator that we're trying to figure out. Like, what would you suggest? It was really interesting to me how easy it was to like ignore the age difference and just be like, we're all here, like trying to do this work and get it done. But while I was on my mission, they lowered the age for elders and for sisters and so when I was 29 I got like a 19 year old companion and in the end I had about three who had uh, one was 20 um and there were some like there were some challenges that came with that but I think there can be challenges regardless of whether or not there's an age difference but yeah there were I think my most memorable thing with age being a thing on my mission was when I had to like pass off driving in New Zealand like to get to drive a mission car and I in New Zealand we drive they drive on the left side of the road which is the same as Australia so I was very comfortable driving in New Zealand like that was very familiar to me whereas I had these American (laughs) it was an American zone leader who was like passing me off to be allowed to drive a mission vehicle and so he and his companion were in the back seat and he'd be like okay at the roundabout go straight ahead I'm like I know roundabouts like I got this I grew up with this and like an island over (laughs) yeah which for an American driving there it is a little bit like oh I'm on the other side of the road it feels a little difficult but for me it was very natural and again I was 29 so I'd been driving for quite some time (laughs) and we were like halfway through and he's just like sister you're doing very well like I'm really impressed I was like cool because I've been driving since you were eight like on this side of the road it was just I know he didn't mean it in a patronizing way but I was just like I know I can drive we got this can I just have my license now yeah exactly wait so you said your parents met in the New Zealand MTC did they serve Mm -hmm. in New Zealand as well no so they served in Australia my dad went to Adelaide where my mum was from which is how my grandma got involved in Uh, matchmaking Um, my mum went to Perth which is Western Australia and then my older brother served in Brisbane which is where my dad is from and my sister served in Sydney and then I served so essentially we'd covered every Australian mission apart from the one we lived in so it made sense that I went to New Zealand which is like the next step out there you go (laughs) But yeah, the MTCs in New Zealand, there isn't one for Australia. But but I went to Provo because I had to learn how to point properly so I could be a visitor (laughs) center. I was just going to ask, you were a visitor visitor center, weren't you? Mm hmm. That's where they send all the pretty ones. I will be the first one to say it. If you're going to a visitor center. That wasn't the case in my mission. I can show you photos. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Steph had like cool historical sites though. I just had like the Temple Visitor Center and the New Zealand Temple Visitor Center must be one of like the lowest visited visitor center. But it was cool. We did like Mormon.org chat and that was fun. But Oh cool. Yeah, it was nice to break up the day sometimes and get to be inside in the warmth. That was only part of my mission though, I think less than nine months I spent in the visitor center. But So what were some like defining moments or favorite moments serving a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints? Um, She's so good at that. <laughs> I think I think I learned a lot about myself and I had felt at a younger age, I think having a mum that served a mission really kept it in the forefront of like, this is something I could really do. Um, And then my sister, even though she's younger than me, served earlier than me. And I, I grew up feeling like, okay, well, if I'm not married by 21, I'll serve a mission. And I got to 21 and I was like, no, I can't do that. That's terrifying. Like I cannot do that. Um, but it was always kind of in the back of my mind. And I got to the point once where I was like, I think I'm going to put my papers in. And I didn't. And then I went and lived in the Middle East. And then I came back and I was like, I can't shake this feeling that maybe I should go on a mission. And it just, even my process of preparing for my mission, it was like, okay. Like I spoke to my stake president and he was like, well, how about you just go to mission prep? And how about you just begin your papers and just see what happens and I began my paper like the process of applying to go on a mission and they were done within three weeks and I was like oh like now I'm gonna have to make a decision (laughs) and I was going to mission prep and I was like this is easy I can do this and I was I was praying about it I was in the temple and I just kind of like felt like I received an answer that I needed to go and I was like oh no no thank you so I was like pray about it again and I like felt even more strongly that I needed to go and so I was like I guess I'm going (laughs) and then I wasn't happy that I was going to New Zealand because I was afraid people would yell at me um but turns out the New Zealand people are really lovely um I don't think anyone yelled at me do you guys have stigma like um Stigmatisms? That's not right. <laughs> like astigmatism in my eye. What's it called? We're like, like stereotypes. Yes. Thank you, but I don't know where I was going with the stigma. <laughs> but like, maybe there, just a stigma, is there a stigma of stigma? like New Zealanders compared to like they probably have about Australia and Australians about that. Yes, yes. You prepared for me to be very racist. No I'm joking. <laughs> jokes. Um, I would say New Zealand. The relationship between New Zealand and Australia is maybe perhaps a little similar to United States and Canada or maybe United States and Mexico. I've never found like a really good um, comparison, but we kind of look at them as like our younger brother and like we'll have some rivalry over rugby and different things like that. And we can like mess around with them, but no one else can. Like no one else is allowed to push them around. And so I think going like a lot of New Zealanders will come to Australia for different work opportunities or things like that. And I was just like, I don't want to go to New Zealand. Like that's, I'd rather stay in Australia than go there. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting once I was there to be like, Oh, like the Americans I served with were so excited to go to New Zealand. Or even when I was in the missionary training center here in Provo, how excited people were that I was going to New Zealand. I'm like, that's nothing like I'm not excited about that 
<laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it is a beautiful place. And I think serving there and living there definitely changed my perspective of it. And I get now why people want to go there because Australia has really sold itself as we have animals that might kill you. And New Zealand has sold itself as we are beautiful. Just watch the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so I get it. But yeah, it's a lovely place. But lessons I learned on my mission, I kind of segued. Um, I think just learning about myself and what I could do. Um, I look back now and no one's perfect on their mission. I look back now and think about the three, the things that I uh, stressed myself out about or like beat myself up about doing or not doing. And I'm like, really? Like we're all just trying mm-hmm. and just maybe being a little more like forgiving of myself in terms of getting things done and doing things the right way um, and just relying on the Lord because you get to those points where you're like, I have nothing more to give or I have, this is beyond my control. And that was humbling for me as well because I think I kind of had a little bit of like, I'm going to be pretty good at this, guys, because mm-hmm. I'm like that. <laughs> She's still a little hair tops there. <laughs> Um, but really being like, in the end, it's the spirit. It's not me. Mm-hmm. And that's the same for every missionary. Like, you can be as eloquent or as educated as you want. But in the end, it's the spirit that converts. And that was a good reminder. So everybody, once you went on your mission, everybody in your family served. Uh, my younger brother didn't oh, for okay. health reasons. Gotcha. But yeah, I was fifth of sixths to get out there. That's really cool. Mm. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. My grandparents on both sides were converted in the 50s by missionaries um, who would come to Australia. And so, yeah, I guess missionary work was strong in the family. Yeah. But yeah, good times. I look back now and I'm like, I could never do it again, but somehow managed. <laughs> See, sometimes it's like, I would love to go back and do things better than I did when I was 21 when I oh went. yeah but then I think no I don't really want to go back home. oh yeah I think don't we all have that nightmare uh-huh. where you wake up and you're like oh good I don't actually have to go back yeah. <laughs> I do have so. dreams of going so I served in the Philippines I have these dreams of like traveling back there they come probably a couple times a year yeah and sometimes I can't get there or I do run into my favorite families and yeah. stuff but Dreams of going back to the Philippines do come. Yeah. And it was nice serving in New Zealand that when I lived in Australia, it was easy to visit. Like, I've been back twice since my mission. And I think that was something that my family have enjoyed serving within Australia, that you cross paths with people. Um, Like, we have people in my parents' ward that my mum baptized across the other side of Australia. Um, And so different connections that, because you've served fairly close to home, you can keep that strong. So, yeah, it was good times, but it was hard times. Mm-hmm. A mission is not easy. Mm-hmm. So no. then you came home, and what was next in life? Did you, you have a game plan? Did you know what you were going to do? Oh, no. Why have one of them when you can just <laughs> roll <laughs> with it? Right? <laughs> um, I came home and, yeah, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do career-wise, except that my publishing like where I'd been working at the publishing company I came back and they were like come back we'll have you and I was like sweet I mean yeah give offer me a job I'll take it so I went back to publishing 
Um, I did data integrity there, which again, I was kind of like, cool, I like this, but I don't know if I love it. And I still am not sure if I want to pursue this, you know, going forward. And I found myself missing the classroom, which I look back now, I'm like, maybe I miss kind of the autonomy of a classroom where you kind of get to decide for yourself like what I'm teaching today or what I'm I don't know I think I just liked the idea of having a little more control over my Mm day-to-day work life Um, and so I went back to teaching and I taught in Melbourne I loved the school I was at I think it was probably my favorite teaching job that I'd had like I'd now been I'd been at two different schools yeah and this was my third school and I, it really, I think was my favorite. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the kids and the staff and, um, I was really happy in Melbourne. Like there had been times when previously where I had itchy feet, like I'd gotten a British visa because I thought maybe I'll go live in London at some point and this will be good to have. But at this time in my life, I was really, really happy to be in Melbourne and to be teaching. I was really enjoying it. And probably about four or five months in to teaching there, I got an email fairly out of the blue from someone in Utah being like, do you want to come teach in Utah? And Which my, is really random from Australia to Utah. It is. It is. But it was like mutual friends and it was someone that I'd spoken to before about teaching and yeah. So it fell out of the blue. Um, but my first reaction was no like why would I want to go to Utah when I can be here in Melbourne with this class that I love and this job that I'm really enjoying why would I do that but I was like well it's not every day that someone offers you a work visa for another country and I had a friend at the time actually who really wanted to move from New Zealand to the United States and was really struggling to figure out like how to do that And I think that maybe a little bit made me feel like I can't just turn my nose up at this because this is something that a lot of people would love the opportunity to do and I'm being offered it and I want to say no, but maybe I should say yes and just give it a go, which led to saying yes and giving it a go. So I moved here. And you didn't know very many people here, right? No, I had had like a companion from my mission and some other mission friends and I been to Utah probably maybe eight times before I moved here so I felt like I knew what I was in for but it's quite different when you actually live here um but yeah I didn't really have a huge support network moving here like I knew that would be a challenge but I'd moved to the Middle East like barely being able to identify on the map where Sharjah was (laughs) so I guess it wasn't my first foray into living overseas and kind of having no idea. Um, I will say though, getting yourself set up in the Middle East is easier than getting yourself set up in America. They do not make it easy or maybe visas. The visa wasn't too difficult. Um, My employer took care of most of that, but just like getting a social security number, being able to buy a car without a bank account or without an American driver's license or without a social security number at the time, or like all of those little things that I don't know, you wouldn't think twice about them if you're an American, but they just all kind of like tumble together. It's like, well, if you don't have that, how can you get this? Well, I can't get like, just, you know, can't get this without that, without that. So where do you begin? And you get it done eventually, but man, those were real hard days. 
So when you moved here, did you stay with the friend that emailed you and said, hey, come have a job here? Or where did you stay when you first? Um, so I had one of my companions from my mission, um, actually my only American companion, aside from my MTC companion. Um, she got married in July of that year. And so I'd already booked a trip over for her wedding. Oh. Um, and I didn't know when I booked that trip that I was going to be moving here. But when I came over in July for her wedding, I was like, well, I'm going to be living here in a month. So this is a great time to go and find somewhere to live. So I hopped on KSL and um, just found a place in Draper and was like, I'll be back in a month. And then went home and packed up my life and (laughs) came back here and bless her. The day I arrived, she came to Ikea with me and (laughs) I bought a bed and I was like, as long as I have a bed to sleep on and... Yeah, wow. it was... But didn't you have crazy roommates in that first place? Um, yeah. Girl, tell us the roommate stories. Like, I love Wasn't there stories. something with drugs? <laughs> and objects yes. missing? Um, yeah, that was an interesting place. And it's, again, I think we come back to, like, I'm a shy... Like, I'm not overly outgoing. And so it was, like, a three-story townhouse, and I had the top floor, and I was just, like... I would come home and again, I don't cook. So I would just come home and I would like go up to my room and it wouldn't be unusual for me to just stay up there all night. Cause I had no reason to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't, I don't know. I'm a weird kid. I guess that's <laughs> what we've learned. So I wasn't like close to my housemates. And so I think housemates changed and I didn't even know. So like, I'm sure I lived with, I know I lived with people that I never met. Um, We just never crossed paths. And it was a little bit transient in terms of, like, it seemed to always be someone. There were three of us in there and the other two, I don't know, I'd be like, who's living here now? Yeah. I have no idea. But towards the end of me living there, um, yeah, we had a housemate who you could tell something was a little bit off. Um, And then she started, like, stealing things from the house to buy drugs and... I was like, okay, going to get a better lock for my door. And now I really have so no your, reason your to your door leave. would be locked and she would go in and steal it? She never stole from me, thankfully. Because yeah. I think partly that I was on the top floor, like you you would have no reason to be up there because it was mm-hmm. just my bedroom. And that's not really a great source a of lot more work. things to steal when there was other yeah, stuff all more stairs. accessibly. <laughs> yeah, more accessible. So that really, I was like, I guess it was the first time in my life that I had lived with strangers aside from as strange as people on your mission might be. Yeah. Um, But but at least you have the safety of knowing they're on a mission, you know. Well, I mean, does that that mean anything? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, it really was the first time where I felt, and uh, even just being in America and it being foreign makes you feel a little more vulnerable. Like, I think I feel more unsafe here than I ever felt in the Middle East, which is unusual to look back on. Yeah. And maybe I was too naive in Dubai, of dangers around me but Mm. yeah I felt really vulnerable and so I was like I'll just lock myself in my room and I'll be safe it was a really happy life back then guys (laughs) and I was doing real well how many years have you lived here now um so I moved here August 2016 so it's over three years and the last new year's like around new year's I remember being at a dinner with you 
And this was like the budding start of our friendship. I was going to ask, is that what <laughs> where it all began? Well, we first met. I'd stalked her for a long time. I didn't. Well, she. I like invited her roommate to come to this. Um, to this Christmas cruise that was outside because I did a podcast with the guy and so I was trying to get a group and no one wanted to go because it's like <laughs> winter time and they're freezing but Kelly came and she was like I just want to be your friend and I'm like I want to be your friend too and then instantly we started talking on the phone like every day yeah, after that yeah that's true but once she gets you it's so true. <laughs> it's so true no but so the thing that I loved is we were sitting around and we were talking about the year so this was 2018 talking mm-hmm. about 2018 yeah. And you talked about your roommate, Cammie, and you said that living with Cammie was the first time that you felt at home in America. Yeah, that is true. Can't Just, watch. yeah. I hope she listens to this. <laughs> hey, Cammie. <laughs> She'll love that. But yeah, it definitely has. And I think moving to a new place, it always feels foreign in a way, but it does get better with time. And this maybe took longer than I expected it to. But, yeah, I feel really happy where I'm living. I'm really happy in my job change recently. And, yeah, it it feels like things are coming together. Like, this is, this is as home as I can expect it to feel, I think, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Since we don't have... Well, I guess <laughs> there's Tim Tams, but... <laughs> yeah. And Vegemite. Tams and... Australia is that an Australian yeah. cookie? Yeah, Tim Tams are Australian. I didn't know that. Yeah, shout out to. No. Yeah, <laughs> they are. Tim Tams sadly are like one of the only things that you can buy here that are actually made in Australia. There are other things that you're like, oh, that's Australian, and then you look closer and you're like, hmm, no, it's not. It's made up. But the Tim Tams here, it's like they're actually a product of Australia. I love Tim Tams. Yeah, they they are great. Huh. Yeah. So, and I think I, it was funny. I was reading a post in a group that I'm on that's like Australians in America. Um, and you someone, gotta find your support group. Yeah. You do. You do. And they're the ones that tell you where to find the Tim Tams or oh, yeah. if other things pop up. Um, but it was funny. It was someone who was like, I've lived here for 20 years and this time of year I still just feel really like a foreigner. And I'm like, I everyone like there were so many comments of like everyone feels this way and I think it just is the nature of living in a country that is not your native home that it will always feel foreign like even there are people who you know have been married to an American or have like kids here and like I know I have my family but it's still not it's maybe it's home but it's there's still a longing for like what really feels like your natural home and so I don't know if I'll ever feel that but yeah it's definitely become better than what yeah. it was in the Draper days <laughs> the Draper days I like that well but you also had talked about how like Christmas you yeah. usually spend at the beach so here in Utah when you're freezing your butt off that's yeah. also probably why it doesn't feel yeah yes. yeah this time of year is when like traditionally the days are getting longer you like go and have fish and chips on the beach and just be loving life and you're like that's how you know it's Christmas because there's all of this daylight after work and you're like let's go and do this thing or that thing like and here it's like cool I left for work in the dark and I'm coming home in the dark (laughs) and all I want to do is be inside yeah like it doesn't have that same like holiday feeling that I associate with like Christmas time of year so yeah, I think that will never quite feel natural, but 
yeah it just gets better as you make different traditions or yep i feel you (laughs) in a tiny way yeah (laughs) do you want to talk a little bit about your transition from so you you taught at the school that they brought you out Mm -hmm. for three years three years yeah and then you just barely had a transition of a job but i mean this process it was like five months (laughs) it was a long process i met kelly at the beginning of the summer and it was just barely the starting ideas of it Mm -hmm. and just barely started a couple weeks ago yeah it's it's been quite a year yeah (laughs) i think i've had um as I've gone in and out of teaching, I've always wondered, like, do I really have a passion for teaching? Because you see these people who you're like, they have a true passion for it. And I think I'm skilled at teaching. Like, I definitely feel like it's something that I can do. And I think I can do well at. Um, but I was like, I don't know if I have a passion for it. Like, I don't know if this is what, like, drives me out of bed in the morning. It's more the duty of, like, going to my job is probably what drives me. Um, and so, and I think as I get older and I look ahead and I'm like, there's a chance I won't ever have children or maybe I won't ever get married. And if I don't, like, my career is really, like, the focal point of my life. Like, I want something that I can really, like, throw myself into, I guess. And it just felt like teaching wasn't going to be that. Or maybe at least teaching in Utah wasn't going to be that. Um Yeah, and there were just different things that I was finding frustrating about my job and I didn't know how to, like, change my situation. Um, Visa life is not fun um, and it makes you feel a little bit trapped in, like, what your options are. I didn't feel like I was ready to, like, move my life back to Australia, um, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do that would really motivate me and be like, this is what I want to do for the next 30 years. So I started looking at some different options and just like the whole process, as much as it has been anxiety ridden and one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, truly, um, the whole way along, it just felt like, no, this is working out like this. I think this is meant to happen this way or this is this is going to be a real positive in my life once we finally get there. So I had applied for a job that I was really excited about. Um, And I felt like I can be good at this. Like there's a lot of hurdles to get over to like accept this job and get a visa for this job. And I mean, to be honest, to even be offered this job. But it just felt like as I started down that path in May, June, when it began, it just there was always this underlying current of like, no, I think this is going to work out and this is going to be amazing. So, yeah, I interviewed for it. Um, I did a phone interview. I went to Australia over the summer because that's just what I tend to do. See the family. I did some, I did a, like a Skype interview while I was home at 1am in the morning because time difference is fun like that. And then they wanted me to come in and do a job shadow. And I was like, I'm still in Australia for a couple of weeks. And so we set it up and it kept falling through. And then they're like, let's just wait till you get back to Utah. And I went back in for another interview. And I was like, will I ever know if I'm offered this job? The summer's almost over. Um, And I think I was offered the job essentially one of the first days of that school went back, which was a very uncomfortable time to be offered a new job that I was really excited about the possibility of taking. 
Yeah, because I remember you're like, I'm trying to be excited with these kids, but it's also like you have all these elementary school kids that you're teaching. and Yeah, and I was like, I don't know what my life is going to look like in the next six months, and I know what I would love it to look like, but realistically, that's still... Like, getting offered the job was... I look back now, I'm like, I think getting offered the job was the easier part of the process because without a visa, a job offer means nothing. And visas are just so, like, you just never know if it will come together or not. And it's a lengthy process. Um, It's an expensive process. I was really lucky that the company was totally willing to bear the costs of the visa and the lawyers, um, even though it was still unknown as to whether or not it would be granted and so it was, yeah, it was a rough time. I, I think like that's frustrating that it's like, okay, these guys want me to do this job. They're paying yeah. for these lawyers, but like they could go through the whole process and you wouldn't get the visa. Yeah. And then if you're slacking off at your job teaching because yeah. like it's hard to be there and you got fired, you would be out of yeah. the States because you wouldn't have a visa. So yeah. it was just like, I feel like that whenever I would talk to you, it seemed so frustrating because it's like you felt a little it seemed like you were trapped Mm -hmm. like you couldn't you didn't not trapped but like control you said a lot of times like you felt like you didn't have control yeah completely it was like a state of limbo and it was really hard to see other people who were offered jobs and could just accept the job and start two weeks later and I I've never like wanted to be American like I'm really (laughs) proud to be an Australian (laughs) we're offended (laughs) (laughs) if you're Australian you'd get it Um, (laughs) but it definitely was a time when I was like I feel so penalized for not being an American like that this is such a difficult process compared to someone who just happened to be born on this piece of land who can just like be offered a job and (laughs) (laughs) who can just be offered a job and just start the job whereas for me it was like who knows like where months into this process and I still have no idea if this is going to work out or not and yeah that it felt like this limbo of if it doesn't work out what does life look like then like does that mean I stay here and I give up on this idea of having a different kind of career that I can throw myself into like it felt like as much as it was plan a it felt like there wasn't a plan b that I was happy with Mm mm-hmm it was like this is all or nothing like I'm throwing all my hopes on this one dream that I've had that I finally felt courageous enough to go after and it feels like it's coming together but in one like moment it could all fall apart and I'm like I don't know what life looks like now and you hadn't told the the teaching job that you had this other job in limbo right no because there was like zero guarantee that I actually had the job mm. Because if the visa doesn't get granted, the job is nothing. And right. you're like, you don't really tell a current employer, like, hey, I'm hoping. Yeah. <laughs> I got the job, but you know whether the country yeah. will allow me to stay. Yeah. Gotcha. So how long from when you got the offer to when you went to Australia? Well, because didn't you yeah. didn't have to say that the paperwork was... So you have to leave the country. So like it goes through a process of paperwork with the lawyer like preparing for you to be able to apply for the visa um and there's a portion that the employer has to apply for saying hey we want to hire an international we're not going to pay them less than we'd pay an american like just kind of keeping it above board and they have to prove that like you can do the job 
because we had an international work for us and we actually lost him he, had, he was deported and it's one real. of, one <laughs> of the biggest guy. things was that they we had to prove that he was more qualified than any American mm. that ever applied for that job so I'm sure it's the same thing that you had to prove that like it was Luckily, worthwhile giving it to you rather than some American that yeah, taking their job. Luckily, the Australian visa is a little bit different, and you don't actually have to approve, prove like there is a British visa where you have to prove that we couldn't hire anyone here. Like we had to get an outsider essentially, uh-huh. and I think that might be similar to your yeah. situation, where like this was a better candidate than anyone we could possibly find. Luckily, the Australian one is a little more like here's a job that requires some kind of de- degree or training. And he is a person with that qualification that we want to hire, give him a visa. Like, you don't have to prove that I'm better than any American you could hire. Which, I mean, I am. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm absolutely not. But, yeah, luckily you don't have to prove that portion of it. It's just like, here's an Australian with the what we want for this job. Please give them a visa. But it really, it does come down to you have to, like, leave the country to apply for it. Or you stay here and do an in-country one, which takes months and months to do. And I was like, I can't wait more months. Like, I need (laughs) some, like... Because wasn't it October by the time... When was it? It was November that I... So, November when you to Australia. So, you found out in August. Yeah. Offered the job early August. And it was... Yeah, August, September, October. It was about wow. three months before it was like, okay, we're at the portion now where you can leave the country and apply for it, which again is hard to do when you have a current employer. Um, but, and that, even that, like I went to the consulate in Melbourne and the guy told me I was approved and I was like, I don't believe you until wait, I wait, have. Wait. Can you tell this story though about when you got up, when you like arrived and waiting in line? Where you were, like, debating oh. between the male or the female. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, it's real rough. Well, because, she is a female. And, and this Just is also, <laughs> I mean, these are the details that I want you to share, too, because going to Australia is not just, like, a quick thing. So it was very scary, too, because it was, yeah. like... Well, oh, wow. it was a situation where it was, like, I need to go... I need to go somewhere to apply for this visa. The next available appointment for this type of visa in Canada was April 2020. Oh, wow. I was like, I can't wait that long. Like, they separate out appointments for Canadians who need to apply for things and others who need to leave America to apply, and Canada's the best option. So the wait time for that is much longer than just what a Canadian maybe has to wait for. And then there's options like, I could have gone to Mexico, I could have gone to Barbados, apparently they do them real quick. I could have got, like, I really could have gone to a hundred different countries, but you then, if you get approved, they take your passport to process the visa, and you just have to wait in the country until they... Like, okay, your your passport's ready, come pick it up, or we'll send it to you. And there's very few countries in the world that I'm comfortable sitting in without a passport. (laughs) So (laughs) I explored a few options, and then in the end, I was like, I might as well fly a very long way expensively and be at home where I feel safe (laughs) sitting without my passport. So I went to Australia. Um, Did you do it over Thanksgiving, or was it? No, it was. It was before Thanksgiving, and I was like, I could wait until Thanksgiving, but it just feels like I'm delaying. Like, if I wait until then, I can't start my job until 
mid-December and yeah. yeah it was like I can't handle any more delays like my life has been so in limbo I need something to be decided yeah. so yeah originally it was like I, I'm going for a week because if I get denied then I can be back like within the week uh-huh. if I get accepted then that spirals into well now we've got a different issue to handle in terms of resigning and giving notice and things like that so originally the plan was like okay go for a week see what happens it may take longer to get my passport back than that so I went um to the appointment you wait in line it's all very like you've been through security you've had like everything taken off you you've just got like your passport and your documents in hand and you're waiting in a line it was I hadn't been to this consulate before I did my previous one in Sydney and it's one line but it splits into two which is a little confusing because then you just kind of have to alternate with the person beside you like who actually gets to go it's kind of like going to a bank teller window like there's kind of doors but you can hear everything that's going on really and you're just standing at a window talking to like the consular official And I could hear the people ahead of me being denied. Like, you can hear the conversation that's going on. They weren't all necessarily there for the same visa, but they're all trying to get some sort of visa or situation to enter the US. And the guy, there's a lot of people in line, but I heard one guy get denied um, and they just walk out. You're like, and it just felt like so real. Like there is a chance I will not get this visa and that's really going to impact my life. And you said you had this binder full of stuff yeah. that the lawyers had like prepared had, like, for you. Yeah. Oh a huge, gosh. huge mound of documents that I'm holding on to, like supporting why I should get the visa. And so there was like one window was a female, one window was a male. And I start kind of analyzing the results that I'm seeing And it seems like more people are getting denied at the man's window than at the female window. And I start kind of like playing my odds and like, am I better off going to where there's a male? And maybe if I smile, he'll give me a visa. Because it really does feel like it's up to this consular official. Like if they're having a good day, like stamp you're in. If they're having a bad day, no, I'm sorry. You've been denied. And I know it's not quite that, but it really does feel that way. Like it's how they're feeling today. And so I was like, am I better going to the male? And maybe if I smile nicely, he'll say yes. Or am I better going to the female? Because odds that I'm seeing, people are getting accepted at her window and they're getting denied at his. And I don't know for what reason they're getting denied, but I'm not liking my odds. So I was praying about it. I was like, please, please just like, let me go to the window that will grant me the visa had a situation with my uncle when he came back from his mission trying to pass through the United States without a visa to fly home to Australia and it came down to like pick one of these windows and if they let you through you can get on a plane otherwise we'll have to send you back um, to Canada and you'll have to fly through Europe or something ridiculous and so his situation was that he prayed he picked a window of like the eight the guy at the window was like I don't know much about your church but my son was just baptized and it's the best thing that ever happened to him so I would let anyone through from that church so I had in the back of my head like that happened when I was maybe 10 I had in the back of my head like miracles can happen like get the right consular official and you're in (laughs) Um, and so I was 
praying really hard like and then because it was a situation where I was like okay well if it if I'm up next and it's the male's window maybe I just say to the guy beside me in the same line like oh you go ahead like hoping to like roll the dice and get the female so it was very anxiety ridden and I overthink things a lot well how long (laughs) were you in line too oh at least an hour like an hour of like like watching what's happening and what's happening to everyone else and which when am I going to be up at the front of the line and who's going to be oh he's doing some marriage application that's taking forever and Uh he's sending people away and then saying come back to my window anyway I was like in the end I just have to have faith that what will happen will happen and try not to like change what's meant to be Uh (laughs) so in the end I had the mail I went to the window he didn't really want to look at anything. He asked me a few questions. I was like, but I've got all these documents like, <laughs> telling you why I should. There's this photo and he's like, oh, oh yeah, no worries. He's like, is your job offer signed? And I looked at it. I was like, no. He's like, oh, the job offer's not signed? It's, you know, digital. What's signed these days? Yeah. And I really was like, I'm going to not get my visa because this one piece of paper isn't and was signed. It, you, it was signed by you? No, it meant like okay. had my employer signed it as if it makes a difference like right. I could have scribbled anything on there right he doesn't know what the signature it should be and he's like do you have anything that's signed I'm like flipping through I'm like I have a company letter of support he's like oh yeah show me that and I like hold it up he's like okay yeah no worries well you're approved uh, I'm what now you're like you don't want to see anything uh, else okay well I'll be on my way he's like you'll get your passport back in a week didn't take a week the delivery company lost it no but that's fine it was just the end of Sorry. the trial <laughs> it was so dramatic on my part but i was like yes clear sailing uh, nothing clear about this process but oh my gosh it's just there have been a lot of lessons this year and the lesson that some things i cannot control oh my has been a big one of them but i am really excited for this like new chapter of this new job and and what are you doing you're working at KSL Mm -hmm. yeah a product manager there so very cool yeah it's a difficult one to describe analytics and data and I'm really enjoying it I'm only a month in there's a lot to learn but yeah it really it's been a great way to finish 2019 and I'm excited for like 2020 and like Yes, let's like hit the ground running, uh-huh. new things ahead. It's going to be a great year. That's so awesome. a long journey and I look back and I'm like, would I change things about different choices I've made in life? Like when I look at times that I felt were really hard, I'm like, would I go back and change that and like avoid having to go through that? But it all just leads to this point. And I know that's super cliche, but it's like things that were frustrating about a previous job. Well, that drove me to look for change. And if it had been comfortable, I just would have stayed there. And I wouldn't be like in this place that I'm really excited to be in or people that I've met. And I think maybe I shouldn't have spent as much time (laughs) with certain people or like you know making choices the way you do and then I think but that led to learning things that I think have been crucial to the situation that I'm now in so as much as you look back and you're like I could have avoided that it really has led to this place where I'm really excited to be and 
it's just great times. Like the light at the end of the tunnel is bright. And I enjoy standing in it. (laughs) Well, I think that's a great way to end. So Kelly, thanks for letting us talk to you about your life history. And I'm so grateful that I got to meet you at this time. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) It was really stuff, so don't take any credit for that. No, me too, as you were talking, I'm like, it's just interesting how people are put into our lives, but like, I'm very Mm -hmm. grateful. Yeah, it is good times. So now you guys know Kelly. Yeah, maybe a little too much. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. This podcast is brought to you by Remnus Audio. If you also want to be accountable or record your journal or preserve your memories, head on over to remnusaudio.com and Steph here will take the hard work out of preserving your memories. Yeah, I will. And you don't have to put them on a podcast like we are to share with everyone every week. (laughs) 